You know, we are going through a season here. It's, you know, the church calls it Lent. And Lent is about giving up something. And why would Christians in the past want to give up something? Well, it kind of reflects what God gave up for us. He left heaven. He came to earth. He gave up his life for us. But, you know, that's not what I'm going to chat about. I want to look back um, to just the hours before Jesus' death. And he's meeting with his disciples, and he's explaining to them that he needs to leave. And, you know, you have to understand where they're coming from. We're looking at the story from a backward glance, but they're living in the story. They're in the moment. And their expectation of what the Messiah was going to do was actually overthrow a physical kingdom. So they're looking at physical realities. You know, it's, it's since the New Testament has come along that we look at it in a metaphorical sense. We look at, we spiritualize a lot of things that were happening. They were actually living in the moment. These were real situations. They were real Roman soldiers. They were really looking forward to the kingdom of God actually overpowering this physical kingdom that they were experiencing. And so that was what was in their mind. They had looked at the prophecies. They'd seen the hope that Israel would be uh, the head and not the tail. They saw that, you know, the kingdom of God would be restored. And so they're living in that anticipation and hope. Now, what they cannot see, but is also in the Old Testament, is a whole stream of prophecies regarding the Messiah's suffering. They just couldn't connect with that part of the book. Because how many know that we cannot, you know, well, I was reading something the other day. We're actually blind to things. We, we, you know, we're filtering things out all the time, and we're missing things. We don't even know that. And that's why when people see an accident or something, they're only seeing some parts of it. Your brain is filtering out a lot of other information. And so we think we see everything, but in reality, we miss a lot. We're taking in what we have a predisposition towards, and it helps solidify what we think life should be like. And that's what they were living. You can appreciate that. And all of a sudden, Jesus is giving them a different picture, and it's incongruent with what they're thinking. And they're struggling with some of the things he's saying about dying and all this kind of stuff. And Peter rebukes him for saying that. He's just not relating to that at all. Then all of a sudden, Jesus really lowers you know, the boom on these guys, because he says to them, you know, even tonight, all of you are going to forsake me. Well, Peter's indignant by this. He says, hey, wait a minute. I'm prepared to go to prison with you, Jesus. I would even be willing to die for you, Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. Well, that was a shocking blow to Peter. I mean, he thought he knew where he was. And, you know, so often in our lives, that's the way it is. We think we know the condition of our soul, but the reality is we don't fully know where we're really at. But Jesus does. And we know the story. You know, Jesus is arrested in the garden. He's taken off. Peter follows from a distance. They get there to the kind of a Mickey Mouse arrangement where they're accusing Jesus of things. And all of a sudden, a young woman comes up to Peter and she says, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? He goes, not me. You know, and then a little later on, Peter's probably talking to somebody and he has that beautiful Galilean accent and said, hey, you're one of the Galileans. You must have been a follower of Jesus. He goes, I don't even know this guy. And three times, and then the third time, both Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus just happens to catch Peter's eye. And Peter now remembers that before the, the rooster would crow, he would deny his Lord and Savior. Boy, I'm telling you, that was so humbling for Peter. He was so crushed in that experience. It says that he went out and wept bitterly. He was broken. And you know what the tragedy was? That Peter, at, from this point on, did not have a chance to somehow rectify the problem because Jesus is now ushered away, sentenced, beaten, 
and crucified, and Peter has no way of making amends to what he's done. You can just imagine the pain. And then all of a sudden, they're sitting there in the upper room, and the women come running back on an Easter Sunday morning, and they're telling them, Jesus is alive. He's not dead. There's an empty tomb. There's angels that appeared to us. They said, you know, you will meet you in Galilee. And one of them says, and one of the angels even mentioned that Peter, he, Jesus mentioned you by name. Now you can imagine, Peter's got all of these emotions circulating in his heart and mind as he's going through this. As a matter of fact, John MacArthur says it this way, the most faithful and obedient Christian who faces the greatest, it, it's the most faithful people that have the greatest struggles. Now you, you'd kind of say, well, why is that, Pastor? Why would we have, you know, we're the ones that are really pressing and we're the ones that are seeking God. We're the ones that are really serving God. That's because most of the individuals that are not walking with God, they're not experiencing anything. They're already in the kingdom of darkness. That's one reason. The other reason is a lot of Christians are living defeated lives. They're not causing any grief to the enemy. As a matter of fact, they are a poor advertisement for the kingdom of God. So he's not going to mess with them very much. So the person that is going to be engaged in the greatest intensity of spiritual warfare is the person who is following Jesus and living to obey him. And there's a battle going on. And a lot of times as Christians, we go, well, why would I want to have a life with this tremendous spiritual conflict? You know, I'd rather back away or shy away from that. Yeah, you could do that, but then you're defeated. But then you've got to have another picture. And here's the picture that I see. When you're walking with God in obedience, you're actually defeating the kingdom of darkness. You're actually engaged in warfare. There's actually experiences of victory. Things are beginning to happen. God is working and influencing others through your life. What a powerful thing that is. And so we recognize here how Peter, you know, because he thought of himself in a certain way, but he didn't really see his true condition, he was actually... Uh, unable to identify that he was about ready to fail. And I think sin does that. Sin hardens our heart, and eventually it conceals our true heart condition. And we become full of ourselves, and eventually we get defeated in our lives. Now, Peter's a lot older. And because of Peter's, uh, I would say, a lot wiser, he writes this later on to fellow believers, and he's passing on this information. He goes, do you realize, he says, that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble? Now, why would Peter say that? He goes, I know what that was like. I was full of myself, and I, I just got blown out of the water, right? And he's actually quoting the Old Testament, but he says, hey, you know, it's one thing to know the Bible intellectually. It's another thing to have experienced it. Peter's now writing from experience. How many know it's a big difference? And then he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. In other words, don't try to promote yourself. Let God be the one that brings favor and grace into your life. You don't need to be a self-promoter. Let God be the promoter. Then he says this, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Pastor Mark spoke on that last week. And it beautifully reminded us of that. What he's basically saying is, hey, listen, you and I don't have to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. We can give these things to God. And then he says this, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, and we do have an enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we know that the enemy is looking for people who are not living a victorious life, people who are, you know, just uh, caught up with the things of this world. They're the most susceptible to an attack of the enemy. And then he says, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I really like that text because it reminds us. And I think sometimes when we're going through a real challenging or difficult time in our lives, what's the first thing we think of? That we're the only one that's going through this. We're the only one that's experiencing this. And what Peter's reminding us is that people all around the world, fellow believers, are going through the same things that we're experiencing. 
And so we need to be aware of that. And not only that, as we're going to find out as we get into our text tonight, that there is a measure of suffering in this life that we don't want to experience, but we will have a measure of it in our lives. So, one of the great teachers of life is experience. How many say that's probably true? And I want to point out two experiences that Peter had that I believe that you and I need to experience, just like he did, that will bring about a, a difference between a person who was confident in himself, eventually experienced great failure, to a person who became deeply devoted to God, completely confident in God, and began to experience tremendous spiritual victory in his, in his life. How many would like to move from, you know, looking to yourself to really looking to God? How many would like to move from defeat to victory in your life. Anybody here up for that kind? That's what we're going to focus in on tonight. Okay, so Peter, first of all, has, he the first experience is he meets the resurrected Jesus. You know, when you and I meet Jesus as the resurrected Lord, it changes our lives. That's the number one experience that every person on this planet needs to have. And I will say this, that if people have not met the resurrected Jesus, the living Jesus, and by the way, you know, you think, well, yeah, well, you know, that was, you know, right there in the, in the moment, you know, Jesus comes back, he appears to his disciples, he's walking with them for 40 days. But I want you to think of another character by the name of Paul. And he lived a number of years later, and he was persecuting the church. And what changed his life? He had an experience on the road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Jesus. And that changed his entire life. So number one thing that will bring about transformation in our lives is we have to meet, in, truly, Jesus as the resurrected Lord in our lives. That'll change us. There's another experience, and this is the one I'm going to focus on tonight. On the day of Pentecost, they were waiting in an upper room. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit had not yet come. And they were crying out to God, and the Spirit of God came upon them. Now here's these guys huddled in fear in this upper room, and all of a sudden, God's Spirit comes on them, and they become absolutely transformed. I mean, Peter stands up, you know, after that experience, and he's preaching to the entire city, as many people as they could hear him, as they're wondering what in the world's going on, and Peter's preaching with absolute boldness, calling the culture around them into account for what they had done to Christ. How many think that takes tremendous courage? You know, here he was hiding, now he's out there courageously expending his life, not even concerned about the outcome. That will happen to him personally. You know, you know, one of the reasons why we can't do anything is we're so fearful. Amen? Well, sure we are. We're so afraid of what's going to happen if I do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing. What are people going to say about me, think about me? How is this going to affect my career, my life? You know? But when you're full of the Holy Ghost, you're not thinking that way. You're not even worried about those things. You're just doing what God has called you to do and there's an authority and a power in it. And the enemy backs down to that. And we need to understand that we need to be more courageous and take powerful stands in our lives. Well, that was the second experience. So I want to talk about what makes for a transformed life. And I believe we need to hear this message. Our culture needs to hear this message. Because the church needs to become transformed. We need to have the power of the Spirit to come into our lives so we can live an empowered life. And then we can move from defeat to victory. So I'm going to look at three results that will happen when we have this empowered life in us. And the first one is that we have the ability to fulfill the law. So our text tonight is the book of Romans chapter 8, one of the great chapters of the Bible. Romans chapter 8 and beginning in verse 1. Here's what you need to know. A lot of us have a mistaken understanding of the law. We think, you know, when Jesus came, the law was done away with. 
Because we read a lot of text about it, but I don't think we fully understand it. Let's go back in our thinking to Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. So what does the law do, Pastor? Well, the law tells us what God requires of us. And can I just give you kind of a synergism of entire law? Because Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest law? What did Jesus tell the crowd? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the next greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these two things, on them hang the whole law. In other words, the law is about healthy, loving relationships, first of all with God, and then with one another. That's what the law is telling us to do. Okay? How many think the law is good? The law is telling us to do the right thing. I just read part of the law tonight in Numbers. I was just saying, hey, we shouldn't take advantage of one another because we're actually offending God by doing that. We're sinning against God. So I'm not going to go back, you know, uh, well, let me just say this. The problem with sin is that it alienates people from each other. How many say that's true? It breaks up relationships. It destroys people. It affects us in a negative way. I'm not going to go through and read the book of Numbers again because we've already looked at that earlier. But you know what, Jesus? Here's it's so interesting to me. When you and I love God, it's going to bring about a lot of healthy relationships. How many say that's true? But then on the other hand, it's going to cause some problems with other people. And that's what we need to know. Jesus said, the world will hate you because of me. Well, that's the part I don't like. Right? You know, if I really am a lover of God, it's going to actually have some people that are going to start hating me. And I didn't do anything but love God. And that's what we need to understand. That's why Jesus said, blessed are you when people speak all manner of evil against you and hate you and persecute you. He says, rejoice. Why does he tell us to rejoice then? Because they're now seeing the life of Christ within us. You know, if I'm, if I'm blending into the world, no one's going to persecute me. If I'm just like the world, no one's going to persecute me. But if I'm becoming more Christ-like... Well, the Bible says the world hates Jesus. And haven't anybody understood yet there's an anti-God spirit in our world? And isn't there an anti-Christian spirit in our world? That's because there's an anti-Christ spirit in the world. And the Bible tells us that all the world will hate you because of me. All the nations of the world are going to hate you because of me. It's, it's not, you know, we, we haven't figured this out yet. There's only two realms, folks. There's the realm of light and the realm of darkness. You know, you're either walking wisdom or you're walking folly. You know, yeah, there's a lot of people say there's all these different ways to live. I'm going, yeah, one's a broad stream and eventually it all funnels down to the same place. You know, and then there's the road less traveled. That's the road that the Christian is walking on. It's the one that's in obedience to God. Not a lot of people are walking on that road. That's the narrow path. And that's the road we want to be walking on. Now, let's take a look at Romans. So what's the value of being in a right relationship with God? I'm glad you asked that question. For starters, we're acquitted from the penalty of the law. Listen to what Romans 8.1 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, how many realize that we have been acquitted? So what does it mean to be acquitted, Pastor? Well, it's a legal term. It just means simply this, that when you go to court, the sentence against you is not going to be applied to you, and therefore you're free from the penalty of that sentence. It does not mean that you're innocent. It just means that you've been acquitted. You know, there's a lot of people that have been acquitted that have been guilty. 
How many know that's true? You know, you hire the right lawyer, might get you off. That's what I mean about acquittal. It doesn't mean that you're innocent. It just means that you're not going to suffer the penalty. You've been acquitted of that crime. They're not going to hold it against you. There's no penalty against you. As a matter of fact, we are not going to experience the just demands of the law. We are free to leave death row where execution awaited us. And we are free to walk out and live. By the way, everyone in this room, we have been guilty. We have all been guilty. And Jesus comes along and acquits us. We don't have to suffer the penalty. Aren't you glad that we're acquitted? Isn't that a beautiful thought? So you don't have to suffer for your sin. God has forgiven us if we ask him to do that. But what is the grounds of acquittal? What grounds are we free? What's the reason behind it? It's because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Look at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by sinful nature. In other words, the law tells me what to do right. But because of my sinful nature, I'm unable to do it. Okay? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful nature, or likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in sinful man. In other words, Jesus actually takes our place. There's a whole idea of substitution, and Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Now I want you to think about it. Here's Jesus. He's in a right relationship with God. He's never sinned. He has complete communion with the Father. There's no impediment in that relationship. He now gives us that relationship with all of its benefits, and he takes on our sin, which has alienated us from God and from other people. And so we're over here in tatters and brokenness and in shame and in guilt and in condemnation. And what we do is we exchange. Jesus walks over from this place and says, hey, why don't you come over here? I'll let you stand right here and I'll go over here and take everything that you deserve and I'll give you everything that I deserve. How many go, I like this. Is this amazing? That's the good news. It's something that God did for us. It's God's grace in our lives. It's God's goodness towards us. This is why we come here and worship God and we give our lives to Him because of that. Now the result is, is both instantaneous and there's a progressive transformation that begins to happen when I have this encounter with the resurrection Lord. I'm now free from the penalty of sin, but now God begins to deal with the sin nature in my life because it's still there but now there's another nature that comes inside of me. It's God's divine nature, and now it's living within me. And all of a sudden, I have this new desire to do what's right in God's sight, but yet I'm still battling with things from my past and habits and all the rest of it. How many know what I'm talking about? So that's not disappearing, but it's there. So what we're talking about tonight is how do I move from the sin nature dominating my life to the nature of God being in charge of my life. That's really what we're talking about tonight. It's, you know, it's theologically, we use the word sanctification. It means becoming like what God des designed me to become. Now think back to the book of Genesis. God created us in His image. We were created without sin. Man, we were created like God. Not that we were God, but we were created like Him. And so what happens is when sin comes into our life, it diminishes us as human beings. And the more we sin, the more diminished we become. You see? We need to understand that. And so what happens is when Christ takes his, his, our sin upon himself and we get his nature, 
as we begin to yield ourselves and surrender and obey the things that God is telling us, all of a sudden the nature of God is being re reformed in our lives. It's being enhanced. We're becoming more like Him. We're becoming more forgiving, more kind, more generous, more understanding. Right? We're growing. We're becoming like Him. All of a sudden we recognize that the things we used to think were okay, now we recognize them for what they really are. They're nasty, they're abusive, they're painful, they're destructive. Not only for ourselves, but for those around us. And we recognize, you know what, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I have no interest in those things. I see where it leads. It says here in Romans 8, 4, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So what happens is when I'm living in this, when I'm yielding to the Spirit, what I'm doing is by doing, by obeying God, I'm yielding to God. God's Spirit is in control of my life. I'm now living according to the law of love. I mean, to God's law. I'm actually living what God intended for me to live. I'm, I'm a loving God. I'm loving people. What God wanted me to do. You know, James Dunn writes it this way. It is not the law per se for which Paul speaks of being liberated. It is the law as manipulated by sin and death. See, so the law is not bad. I think we, we've heard so much about the law, we kind of ditch it and say it's bad. No, no, the law still applies. That's the part we don't get. What, what's happening is the sin nature takes that and abuses it. You know, it's a, you know, in other words, it's, the law's been manipulated. And how many kind of see that even in our human court system? Sometimes the law gets manipulated. And instead of having justice, we actually you know, see injustice happen because the law is being manipulated by our sin nature. And it happens. And we see that. You know? So we have to remember what the essence of the law is. What is it again? Love God, love people. That's good. It's just that we couldn't do it apart from the Spirit. Let me move on to the second result of the Spirit-empowered life. And that is that we're able to overcome the sinful nature in ourselves. By the way, that's the greatest battle. The greatest battle you're ever going to have in life is the battle within you. You've got to win that battle. If you win the battle within you, then you're going to be you know, liberated and God's going to use your life in a very powerful way. That's you know, the thing that's so important. So it starts by us allowing God's Spirit to work in our life. And what it means is we have to uh, really yield our hearts to Him. You know, I was awakened this past week or last week, I can't remember. I've been working on my thesis, it seems like day and night. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. And I've come away with a, such a profound epiphany about what's really going on in our lives. It's all about our heart. And God is telling us, give me your heart. And then later on he says, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. The Hebrew understanding of the heart actually encompasses what we would consider the mind. You see, Paul is talking about we need to have a new mind here. But in the Hebrew understanding, the heart includes the mind. The heart is actually the center of all thought, emotion, and volition, or will. Okay? So when you read the Bible words heart, you're, what you're looking at is the essence of who we are. Think of it as your soul, the entirety of your innermost being. You follow that? Okay, so what does he say here? He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. And that's another thing I'm bringing out. It's all about desire. We need to really evaluate what is it that we really want. 
you know, I would be a little scrupulous about this. We go, what is it that I'm passionate about? What is it that I want more than anything else? But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, here's what I've noticed in the Christian life. There's two groups of Christians, and here, here's how it plays out. The one group says, God, this is my plan. Bless it. This is my will. Do it. Help me fulfill what I want. Okay? That's one way of living. Okay? And then there's another way of living. It says, God, I'm going to surrender to you, and you have a plan for me. Lord, help me to do your will. Now, what do you think is going to happen? Where do you think the resources of God are going to go? They're going to come over here because it's God's will. So when something's God's will, he's going to give us the ability to see those things begin to transpire in our lives. It says, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It's in rebellion against God. Haven't you noticed that the world is, is in a rebellious state against God? There's a hostility. There's a denial. There's a, you know, there's a, you know, there's, 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 you can feel it. It's there. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. There, there's an inability to do what God wants. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Wow, that's strong language, I think. <laughs> really strong language. So what are we reading here? We're reading two things, sinful nature, spirit. Some translations say flesh and spirit, right? Okay. John MacArthur says, obviously there are degrees in both categories. There are some unsafe people that exhibit high moral behavior. And on the other hand, there are many saints or, children or believers who do not mind the things of God as obediently as they should. But in every human being is completely in one spiritual state or the other. They either belong to God or they do not belong to God. This is very strong. There's nobody riding the fence, folks. You're either in or out. How many see that? You're either in the spirit or you're in the sinful nature. Okay? Now, we find in verse 8 that those who are controlled by the sinful nature, as I've already said, cannot please God. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we desire? I would even argue that the problem in the church is that we just don't have a strong enough desire for the things of God. That's the biggest problem. When we have a strong enough desire, we're going to go for it. See, we're a little lax there. We have other desires. Matter of fact, let me say it to you this way. Do you know it's really hard to tempt somebody who's satisfied and content? For example, let me give you an illustration. Let's say, you know, you ate the best meal you've ever had. You're just stuffed. It's Thanksgiving. You've done it. You feel like, oh, I probably ate a little more than I should have. Don't tell me if you can relate to that. But, you know, there are those kind of meals, right? And you just go, wow, I could not eat another bite. And then I find out what your favorite food is. The other night I had some people over at our home, and uh, one of the African families, and this young guy says to me, my favorite food is pancakes. I said, well, just imagine now. You've just had, as we're having this discussion. I said, you've eaten to the point where you said, I probably should have stopped a while ago. I don't think I could eat another bite. And I come into the room, and I'm bringing in your favorite food, pancakes. And you look at those things, and deep down inside you go, I really love pancakes, but right now I don't want it. Why? Because you're saturated. You're satisfied. You're full, right? And you think about it. Temptation can only come to us if there's discontent and dissatisfaction in our life. Because if we're completely satisfied and content, we're not going to be tempted. Yeah, you see that? 
How many go, wow, that's amazing, Pastor? Yeah, if I'm so full of God and I'm so enjoying His presence, it's really hard to distract me with other things. I go, why would I want that? That's a cheap substitute. You see? When you have the real thing, you don't want the cheap substitute. Isn't that true? In all of life. Listen to what Paul says. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now notice the next verse. Then he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He's basically saying the same thing. I don't know if you guys realize that. That's kind of parallelism. He's just reinforcing the idea. He's basically saying, where is your heart? You know, that's the question I love to ask a lot now. Where's your heart? Where's your heart at? Is your heart tender? Is your heart towards God? Is your heart set on the things above? Or is your heart set on the things below? You know, what's your aspiration? What's your desire? What's your longing? What's your passion? Think about that. And one, you know, and, and you might say, well, you know, Pastor, mine is wrong. I have a wrong desire, wrong passion, wrong, wrong direction. And what I'm going to challenge you tonight is you need to say, God, can you change my heart? Can you change where I'm pointed? Can you, you know, do a work in my soul so all of a sudden I'm going to long for the things that you have for me? Because I'm going to make this guarantee. If you keep pursuing the earthly things, it will bring death in your life. It will bring brokenness. It will bring heartache. It will bring disillusionment. You know, you're going to get there. You're going to get maybe what your heart desires. And at the end of the day, you're going to say, man, is this garbage. I am so dissatisfied with my life. But if you give up your life for Christ's sake and you say, God, give me a heart after you. Lord, may I have such a longing and passion and a desire for you. Change my heart, God. What will happen is all of a sudden you will be so full of the good things that all of a sudden you'll be going, I've never been so content. I've never been so satisfied. I've never had so much peace. I've never had so much joy. Wow, is this amazing. Why would I want this over here? You're catching on what's going on here. He says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your mind should be, you know, it says let your, this mind be in you. Which kind of a mind is this? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with something to be grasped. Why? Because he was equal to the Father. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. You know what's interesting? With all of this, we overcome the sinful nature not by seeking rep reputation, but rather seeking to serve others and please God. Once we say, it's no longer about me, this is the, such a big shift. Once you say, you know what, my life is not about me anymore. It's about you. The moment I can move off of myself unto God, huge change begins to happen in your life. That is a paradigm shift for most people. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14. He says, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world has come. And speaking of Satan, he has no hold on me. In other words, he has no authority in my life. There was nothing for him to hang on to. There was no area in his life that he could destroy Jesus because there was nothing there. He was sinless. Wow. Nothing from within to entice. You know why Satan has a hold on people? Because of their fallen nature. Since Christ was sinless, Satan could have no hold on him. The more I'm like Jesus, the less Satan can operate. I'm not giving him space. We are empowered by the Spirit not only to have a new attitude, but a new life. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, You, however, control not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, I want to just quell a, a, a misunderstanding. 
Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Okay, can you just settle that? You couldn't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. It says if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But I think there's a distinct difference in how much of the Spirit we have. You see, the Bible says, and it commands us, be filled with the Spirit. You and I are responsible. And I'm going to talk, bring this out. You know, a lot of times we don't understand this amazing element in our lives that we need the Spirit of God. Now think about it this way. And Dr. Edwin Orr, who was a great preacher and was speaking on the work of the Spirit in the church, he says this, uh, if the Holy Spirit possesses all wisdom and knowledge, never making a mistake, is infinite intellect, the sooner Christian people learn to defer to his superiority, the better. In other words, God's the smartest person on the planet, so why would you and I go against that knowledge? You know, But don't we do that all the time? I'm going to do this. And God goes, no, it's not what I want you to do. I want you to do this. The Bible says don't do this, but we do it anyways. What we're really saying is we're smarter than God. Well, that's not going to go very well. You can tell us right now that's not going to go very well. Right? It's like a young student coming to university for the first day, and he has Professor Albert Einstein in his class, and he's going to argue with him on the theory of relativity. You're just going, really? You're going to take him on? But don't we do that with God all the time when we're saying, listen, God, I want to do this. God goes, no, I don't want you to do this. See what my word says over here? But I don't want to do that. Yeah, but God says, this is really a lot better for you. Yeah, but I'm not that interested in that. I really want to do this. God goes, well, whatever. Go do what you're going to do. And we go do that, and we go, man, is that ever a stupid thing to do? Right? You see, the book of Proverbs says, do not, you know, do not be wise in your own eyes. You know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. What does God have to say about this? Why don't we just do what God says? Yeah, but I don't feel like doing what God says. This isn't going to make me feel good. I'm going, forget the feeling for a minute. Just do what he's telling you to do. He's pretty smart. I found out God's real smart. You know, he's a lot smarter than me. You know, and then he tells this amazing story. He was in the service during World War II. He was in the Pacific Theater, you know, where they were going from island to island, you know, trying to come to Japan. And he said, finally, we were getting ready to invade Japan. They were all excited, these military guys, you know, bring the war to an end, invade Japan, finished at the end of World War II. And he said, here we were, you know, we're going night after night, day after day, training, you know, there was, you know, it was hard. We were sleeping on the ground. I mean, everything about it was difficult, but they were really motivated because they could see it, a positive end to the thing. You know, here they were camped on the sun, and then the command comes down, take down everything, you know, put it on those landing crafts and we'll take you out to the ship. They thought, hey, great, we're heading off to Japan. This is what their thinking was. Then they get the order from the ship. Take everything you just did and go back to the island and set everything back up. Could you imagine all of these soldiers, what they're thinking? Does anybody in Washington really know what they're doing? Edwin Orr is an American. He's just thinking, what are these guys doing? This is so stupid. They were questioning everything. But little did they know that at that moment, a B-29 was flying over top to drop an atomic bomb on Japan. You see, you and I do not know exactly what God has in mind. He's far more strategic than you and I ever know. We think, well, you know, if God, you did this, this is the way it would work. God goes, I've got a bigger plan. I've got a greater plan. And then he goes and basically says this, Christians, we need to subordinate our intellects to the mighty wisdom of the Spirit. He is, the Holy Spirit is the commander-in-chief of the army of Christ. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's supreme in revival, evangelism, and missionary endeavors. Without his consent, other plans are bound to fail. Even now, as the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against him. It is wisdom on our part to fit our tactical operations into the plan of his strategy. 
which is the reviving of the church and the evangelization of the world. Wow, that's powerful. Okay, let me move on here. We're not only empowered through a renewed mind and a new life, but also we have a new obligation. We're under a new obligation. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked on Romans 7. I was basically trying to give us this idea. Listen, you know what? We can't overcome the sin nature apart from Christ. He's the deliverer. But now we've got to live in the power of His Spirit, the Spirit of God. And, he, and He's basically telling us here, we have a responsibility uh, to live, not to live according to the sinful nature, because if we do, we're going to die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, our culture wants to be free to sin. And there's a whole bunch of Christians now preaching the gospel as if there's a freedom to sin. But let me tell you something. If you sin, you will go back into bondage. Okay? It's a freedom from sin. And there is truly freedom there. And that's where we need to go. And we have a responsibility to cooperate with God in this process. You and I have the spiritual power to say no to sin. You say, well, no, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You can cry out to God and say, Lord, help me to do this. I'm tempted here, but I, I, wanna, I don't want to do that. I want to please you. You start asking God for help, He's going to come through and help you. As a matter of fact, I love what John MacArthur says. He says, as far as the Christian life is concerned, everything that is a spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. I'm going to change that word reality. Everything that is a spiritual privilege or a promise from God is also a spiritual responsibility. And I've said this so many times, and I believe this with all of my heart. With every privilege in life comes responsibility. And we need to understand that. You know, if you have the privilege to drive, it also has a responsibility to conform to the laws of the road. Isn't that true? Otherwise, we shouldn't have that privilege to drive. Right? And you know what our culture wants to do today? Our culture says, I want all the privileges and no responsibility. That's what adolescence is like. Isn't that true? And I'm not trying to be mean to the adolescents, but isn't that kind of where, that's when you know people aren't mature. You know, I have, I've raised two daughters, you know, and I can tell you from experience, you know, when they're teenagers, they want to have the privileges without responsibility. Any parents can say, yeah, I get that. I relate to that. I hear that. Matter of fact, I was guilty of that, right? I want all the privileges and no responsibilities in life. But that's not maturity. And I think the church is so immature today, they want, they're like adolescents. We want all the privileges, no responsibilities. Well, listen to what John MacArthur says. A genuine Christian communes with his Heavenly Father in prayer, but he also has the responsibility to pray. He says a Christian is taught by the Holy Spirit, but he's also obliged to seek the Spirit's guidance and help. The Holy Spirit will produce a spiritual fruit in the believer's life, but the believer is also admonished to bear fruit. You know, isn't it interesting it says in the Scriptures that you and I are to make our calling and election sure. And as a matter of fact, Peter says to add to your faith these other things. In other words, you and I are not saved by what we do, but the, we have a responsibility to do certain things. We have a responsibility to grow up. You know, Philippians says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Then, therefore, earlier it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, God saves us, but then we have to work it out. We have a responsibility. We have an amazing privilege, but we also have responsibilities. And this is one of them, folks. If we're going to overcome sin in our lives, we have to take on the challenge and responsibilities of doing the right thing. And stop making excuses. 
Because all excuses do is bring us back to bondage. Isn't that true? So don't make them. You know, just say, hey, I need help here, God. You know, let's be honest with him. I'm struggling here, God. God says, yeah, I know. I'm looking to you, Lord. If you don't help me, I'm done. God goes, I'll help you. But we don't call out to him. We just go, I'd just really rather do that sin. That's a problem. Let me move on to my last point here. The third result of a spirit-empowered life is that we recognize an incredible and intimate relationship with God. It says, because those who, okay, listen to our identity. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are the children of God. He says, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. That's not what it's about. God doesn't want you to be terrified. God wants you to live in this beautiful family state. Think of yourself as a little child with a loving father, and you can go to him and say, hey, Dad, I need help. And his dad is the most loving person in the world. He goes, son, daughter, I love you so much. I want your success in life. I want you to succeed. I want you to become all that I designed and made you to be. Before the world was even framed, I thought about you. I fashioned you. I created you. I even prepared good things for you to do in advance. That's why I'm saving you. I've got something amazing for you to do. I'm in your corner. I'll do everything I can to help you. What a beautiful picture. You go, with a dad like that, who can't make it, right? You know, Dad, I'm short a little bit of cash here. Can you help me out? No problem, son. I'm happy to do that for you. Isn't that our Father? He's amazing. He's great. He's an awesome God. You know, then it says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. And I think this is so important because in North America, we've totally missed this. You know, Douglas Moo is a theologian. He said, it's not, he's not talking about dying here with Christ that happens at conversion. He's actually saying, listen, you and I are going to suffer. And I know Mark preached on anxieties, but there are anxieties. We have to just keep casting them to God. There's daily tr- pressures in life. How many here go, Pastor, I live with daily anxieties. I mean, there's difficulties. There's tensions. There's persecutions. There's trouble. There's challenge. No, and then we, we walk around as Christians and go, doesn't God love me? Why is he letting this stuff stay in my life? It's because he wants you to get strong. You know, when you take away all the responsibilities from people, you cripple them. When you become an enabler for other people and don't let them take on responsibilities, you're crippling them. That's not loving people. And sometimes we do far too much for people. And I'm going to say something that you're going to know where I'm at. But there's a liberal idea out there. It's liberal where they have the best of intentions. They want to help people. But every time they try to help somebody, they always hurt them. Because what they're doing is taking away the responsibility. And they're trying to take away the struggle and the challenge and the difficulty. But those are the very elements that help you and I grow up and become mature. And God allows it. Read your Bible carefully. Look up the word glory, and every time you see that word, you're going to find suffering around it somewhere. It's just the way it works. But let me close with this. You know, the Holy Spirit, who is he? Well, there's a book by Gordon Dalby that's called Healing of the Masculine Soul. And he shares in this book the original understanding of the word paraclete. Now, how many know what that word is? Paraclete is the Greek word that's the call of the comforter. When Jesus said, I must go, because Jesus realized he was Emmanuel, God with us. 
But he said, I must go so that God can be in us. That's the work of the Spirit. God now lives in us. That's why Jesus could say, go into all the world and make disciples. And then he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be in you. I'm going to go wherever you go. You will never, ever elude me because I'm inside of you. Isn't that beautiful? Now, that Greek term, paraclete, originated in the Greek army. And everybody was assigned a person that fought next to them. And that person was to support them. And so when the Greek soldiers went into battle in pairs, Dalby says, so when the enemy attacks, they would draw together back to back, covering each other's blind side. And the other's battle partner was called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the one who's the helper. And I want you to know something. You and I are in a huge spiritual battle. You and I are battling our own sin nature. We're battling the devil. We're battling all the attractions that the society has around us. But we have a helper. We have God himself. He's our paraclete. A number of years ago, I'll close with the story. A number of years ago, Patty and I were playing tennis. A number of times with a couple in our church. I'm not going to tell you who they are. It's so funny. I mean, this guy is so competitive. You think I'm competitive? I'm minor compared to him. I'm hitting a minor. He's hitting a major note. He just... It was amazing. And we're playing with him, and his wife was not athletic. Okay? Beautiful lady. And Patty's quite athletic. My wife's quite athletic. I'm a bit athletic. You know, we should have beat these guys. But it was really difficult to beat them. Because I would try to make sure I was hitting the ball, you know, at the feet of the, the wife. Because that's the only place you're going to beat these guys. Because if the ball went by her, and which it did a lot, you'd think you were scoring the point in the tennis match. But then I could hear her yell out, her husband's name. Get it! And here he was, like a roadrunner, racing around there, hitting everything. And I went, unbelievable. And I came with a new conclusion. You don't have to be very good to be a winner in team tennis. All you need to have to have is the right partner. You know? And I want to just declare to you today, so often we're looking at ourselves and saying, God, I am not very athletic. The balls are going by me left and right, but I can call out to my paraclete, and he's covering for me. And I said to Patty, did we ever win any of those games? Because, I mean, it didn't feel like we did, you know, because the paraclete was back there, you know, bringing the thing back. It was so amazing. And I want to just declare that to you tonight. We have a partner, the Holy Spirit. He's there to help us. Isn't that amazing? So I'm going to have a stand tonight. And maybe you're here tonight. You know, I said two experiences that are life-changing. You know, we can have failure in our life. But think of Peter. The two experiences that he had. Number one, he met the resurrected Jesus. What changed the Apostle Paul's life? He met the resurrected Jesus. I could go down through, you know, history of the entire church. And every life that was transformed happened because they met the resurrected Jesus. And I ask you a question tonight. Have you met the resurrected Jesus? Have you met him? Because he'll change you. Number one, he'll give you a new heart, new desires, a new nature. And then the second experience, we need to be empowered by the Spirit. We're not going to make this on our own. You know, you can grow up in the church. You can hear all about the right things to do as a Christian. And you can be so frustrated because you're always messing up. That's because you're trusting yourself. You need to trust God. You need to say, God, I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. 
know, I'm not strategic enough. I just need your help. As a matter of fact, I was talking to Constantine. He was sharing with me this right before the service. He said, Pastor, when we're weak, we're strong. I said, that's exactly right. Why would Paul say that? What he was saying is when you stop trusting yourself and start trusting in God, things will change in your life. That's when the change happens. So with every head bowed tonight, maybe you're here. Let me ask you a question. If you have not met the resurrected Jesus, but would like to, just raise your hand right now. Is there anybody here? God bless you. Anybody else? Okay. It's powerful. It's good. Next question. How many here say, you know what? I can honestly say, Pastor, I need to live that spirit-empowered life. I find that my desires are for the wrong stuff. And I want that to change. I want my heart. I want a, I want a change of heart tonight. I want to have a passion and a desire to go after God. I want to live in the power of the Spirit. I want to live in victory. And that's you tonight. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. I'm not here to judge you. That's you. God's speaking to your heart right now. He's saying, you know what? I want to live in the power of the Spirit. I want to be empowered by His Spirit. I want to live in victory. Let me pray with us tonight. So, Lord, I thank you tonight. You're speaking into our lives. I believe that. And if I'm here tonight and I'm saying to myself, I want to meet you, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, Here's what I want you to do right now. I'm going to stop praying for a sec. Here's what I want you to do right now. Just pray this prayer. Lord, I want to meet you. I want to meet the resurrected Jesus. I want you to come into my life. I want to experience you. You make that your prayer, he'll come. And then for the rest of us, Lord, we want to live in the power of your spirit. We want to live with such a spiritual passion. We want to have the desires to please you and to live for you and to live in spiritual victory, Lord. And not to be brought under slavery again. Not to be brought into bondage, oh God. We don't have to be brilliant. We don't have to be strong. We just have to trust you. And I pray right now that you will fill us with your presence. We'll have our own Pentecost. Lord, we'll have an encounter with your Holy Spirit that is so great that it will impassion our lives to fulfill your eternal plan for each of our lives. And you have one. And I pray that we'll walk in your plan and purposes for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.